if you brought your Bibles tonight, and I hope that you have, uh, turn with me right back to where we was this morning, Nehemiah chapter 1. I said that, Lord willing, I'd finish what uh, would have started this morning. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll tell you what I want to do. Let's read um, Nehemiah's prayer again. We, we won't read the whole chapter, but let's read the portion that his prayer that is his prayer. And so that really starts in verse 5, okay? So we'll read the prayer. We'll go to the Lord together in prayer ourselves then. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 5 says, and, excuse me, And said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive, in the, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, <clears throat> which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, and though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom, <clears throat> whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now that's the end of the prayer, so we'll stop there. Let's go to the Lord together in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you one more time here tonight. We thank you, Lord, for the good day and for the many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity you've given us to gather here the, this evening to worship you together in spirit and truth. We thank you, Lord, for each one who's come our way. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings that you poured out on us. But we thank you most of all tonight for your son, Jesus, Lord God, that you sent him in giving so that we might have life and have our life eternally and abundantly. We're, we're not worthy of it, and we don't deserve it, and we couldn't ever do enough to thank you or repay you. But God, you knew that already, and you did it anyways. So Lord, let us always be a people that has praise and glory on our lips for you because you alone are worthy of it. And God, I just pray as we go forward here tonight, Lord, that you would just move in a mighty way. God, that you would stir us here tonight. God, that you would just, uh, uh, Lord, have your way and your will in our midst here tonight. God, our hearts pray, or our prayer and our heart's desire here tonight is for you to have your will and your way in our midst. So God, I just ask that you would just move here in a mighty way. Lord, that we would just continue to feel the presence of your spirit. Lord, maybe you'd even move in a greater and mightier way. God, that you'd stir us here tonight. 
Lord, and, and Lord, if there is any, anything here, anything in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds that doesn't please you, doesn't bring you glory, God, bring it to our attention so that we can repent of it and get it out of the way before it's everlasting too late. And Lord, if there's any among us tonight that are lost and undone, any that have strayed from you, Lord, I pray that tonight would be the night that they would come to you. Tonight would be the night that they would get things right with you before it's everlasting too late. And Lord, let me pray one more time for myself. I need your help here tonight. So Lord, I'm asking that you clear my mind of everything but your message, your thoughts, your words. God, I'm praying that you would just um, fill my mouth with the words you'd have me to speak here tonight. Lord, my heart's desire, Lord, is just for it to come from you through me, from my spirit to their spirit, Lord. So, Lord, I'm just asking, use me tonight, and I'll give you all the glory for it. Lord, I'm asking for your anointing, your holy unction. And so, Lord, we just pray one more time, Lord, have your way and your will here tonight, and we'll give you all the glory because we love you, we worship you, and we praise your holy name. We ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. I, uh, I won't spend a lot of time recapping what I said this morning, but, uh, but I will just say a few things to remind you of the situation and of the background. Nehemiah, he is the king of Persia's cupbearer. That is a special position that puts him in a special place uh, where he has access to the king. The average person would not. The nation of Israel, remember, they had been carried off into captivity at this point. We're talking not quite 200 years, but getting close to 200 years previous to this. They had been carried off and defeated by the Babylonians, carried off into captivity because of their disobedience, because they had disobeyed the word of God. They had done what they wanted to do instead of what God told them to do. And so therefore God done exactly what he promised that he would do. Uh, and he sent judgment on them by the hand of a wicked king and a wicked nation. And they were carried off into captivity as slaves. And then after approximately 70 years in captivity, the Babylonian empire is defeated by the Persians. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, who had been prophesied by name uh, hundreds, or at least 200 years earlier, I, I can't remember exactly, yeah, a little over, maybe closer to 300 years earlier, uh, had been prophesied by name by the uh, prophet Isaiah that he would come and that he would send them back, let the captives go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And that's exactly what he did. It was one of his first decrees was to allow them to go back. Zerubbabel took a group back and began uh, the work of, of rebuilding the temple. But it didn't take long an opposition come their way. And it wasn't long until that work had quit. A little bit 20 years later, right? Haggai, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, God sends them. It uses them to get the people going again and, and, and motivated and moving again and to finish the work of rebuilding the temple. But yet even though the temple had been rebuilt, nowhere near, it had not been rebuilt, nowhere near to its former glory, but at least it was rebuilt and operational. Uh, but more time, many, many years go by. And then uh, the priest uh, Ezra comes and begins to maybe set some things in order, but everything is still not... Uh, the city is still not rebuilt. Things are still in shambles. And then we have this scene that I started preaching to you about this morning 
where word comes to Nehemiah, not probably 150, 170 years after the first captives had returned to Jerusalem, word comes to him that the city is still in ruins. Uh, he receives a report from his brethren that is not a good report. It tells us that the people of God are in great reproach. It tells us, uh, he hears, that the, the walls around the city have been broken down. The gates of the entrance have been destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah's reaction to that is he is absolutely broken, right? He, he is absolutely broken broken by that. He is moved uh, to, to uh, I mean, the scripture tells us that he sets down, that he mourns, uh, that he weeps, and that he prays. And that's the thing I wanted to get to, and that was the point that I made this morning, was the news that he got moved him to prayer. And I explained to you that God done, if you go through and read the whole book of Nehemiah, right, God done a miraculous Miracle, right? Uh, the, the walls are restored in 52 days, which was something that was absolutely humanly impossible. But yet Nehemiah was a small group of men, uh, right? Uh, but it was a miracle of God done this. And, and, and we see the city restored under Nehemiah's leadership. I pointed out to you this morning, and I think it's important to understand this before we move on that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Matter of fact, I think I said to you that behind every great work of God, there is a kneeling figure who has learned how to uh, get in touch with God through prayer. That prayer is the, is the key to success in any work for God. I mentioned to you that in this short book of Nehemiah that is only 13 chapters long, we see it makes note 14 different times of Nehemiah praying. You don't see, I'm a loss for the word that I'm looking for here, but you don't see, I'm sure, he, obviously he prayed a lot more than 14 times. He prayed without ceasing, I'm sure of that. As a matter of fact, it says in the word here that he prayed day and night. But you don't see anywhere else in the scripture where it mentions one person praying that much in that short of a span, that few of chapters. To me, the point is, is that Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Now, the point I made this morning, and I'll use this as a launching pad for tonight, is that we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world surrounded by people whose lives are shattered by sin. And because their lives are shattered by sin, they are living, they're continually living in pain and are suffering from the consequences of that. That is the picture of the world that we live in today. That is also the picture of Jerusalem in that day and time. Remember, understand this. For every spiritual truth taught to us in the New Testament for our day and time today, there is a physical example in the Old Testament. You could say that the opposite of that and it'd still be true. For every physical thing that you see talked about or represented in the Old Testament, 
there is an equal spiritual truth to that for the, this age, this church age that we live in, in here in the, in the New Testament time. So, the picture of Jerusalem, broken, destroyed, and lying in ruins, is also a picture of the world that we live in today. And the reason that Jerusalem was in the condition it was in was because of sin, right? They had not obeyed God. They had disobeyed God. That is sin. And because of that, that is the reason their city laid in ruins like it was. It is the same as still true today, right? Right? I am trying to make the connection here. We live in a broken world. People's lives lay in ruins. It is because of sin. That's the consequences. That's what sin does. Now, here's the example that we need to learn from Nehemiah. Upon word of the condition of Jerusalem, the brokenness, the destruction, the lying in ruins, Nehemiah's heart is broken. And he is moved to, uh, to not only to grieve and to mourn, to weep, but he's also moved to fast and to pray for that situation. And then when the time was right and God moved upon him, he took action. That is the point that I was trying to make here this morning, right? Nehemiah's example should teach us the importance of allowing our hearts to be broken for the very things that breaks God's heart. Right? We look out at the condition of our world. We look out. I tried to make the connection this morning. It is our, this is, I'm talking about your children. I'm talking about your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, your friends, your neighbors, right? The people that you interact with every day. These are the ones that we're talking about whose lives are broken, lying in ruins because of sin. This very thing should break our hearts too, just as it broke. Nehemiah's heart. I would say this. I would phrase it this way. Nehemiah teaches us how important it is to allow our hearts to be broken. You ask me, let me stop there for a second. You ask me, that's what's wrong with the church today. We look out and we see the condition things are in and we moan and groan about it. But the problem is, is we're not broken over the sin that caused things to be in the, in the condition that they're in. We're in the stage that we'd rather just gripe about it. And, we, and we'd rather just blame it on everybody else. We, we need to get where Nehemiah was. We need to let his example, and as I go on with this, hopefully it'll become even more clear and more evident that it breaks our heart because it breaks God's heart. So here, what I was trying to say is Nehemiah teaches us the importance of allowing our hearts to be broken for the very same, for, for what breaks God's heart. I'm telling you, not let us, let us repent from turning a blind eye to the condition of things around us and to the needs around us. Instead, Nehemiah has moved to action. And we ought to be moved to action. 
We ought to be moved to action. I'm talking prayer. I'm talking interceding. I'm talking uh, going out and witnessing. I'm talking whatever it is that we can do and whatever it is that we need to do. Right? Maybe that'll help sometimes. It's very practical. Whatever it is to reach those whose lives are literally lying in ruins. Now, I started to break this prayer down this morning. And I only got through, I didn't even really get through the first point, and I had to make my point, and that's where God wanted me to leave it this morning. But the first thing that I pointed out in this prayer is how, and I think we can learn how to pray from Nehemiah's prayer. I don't think I mentioned it, but there's 14, I know I mentioned there's 14 prayers in the book of Nehemiah, or it's mentioned 14 times about Nehemiah praying. The two long, great prayers of Nehemiah that's recorded here is Nehemiah chapter 1 and Nehemiah chapter 9. You can take some time to read those. Uh, but chapter 1 here is a great example. And the first thing he starts out when he says, I beseech thee, uh, O Lord, God of heaven. Right? I told you that reminds us of how Jesus taught us to pray when he said, Our Father which art in heaven. Right? We come to God with praise, with adoration, with recognition. Right? Uh, it needs to be worshipful. Right? We come to him even when we're praying. It is a part of our worship and a form of worship. And it should be an adoration. Right? That means great respect and love. Right? And in recognition of who God is. And I spent a lot of time this morning on just exactly who God is. Understand that you're talking to the creator and sustainer of the universe. Not one of many gods, but the only true and living God, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, the second point I was going to make this morning that I never even got to was the second thing that I want you to see in Nehemiah's prayer. And it's one thing that I think we are sorely missing today. And it would simply, I could, if I was going to sum it up in one word, I would say this, confession. What do I mean by that? Once Nehemiah has approached God, and he has approached him, and, and he started out by praising him, by giving God the adoration uh, that he deserves, right? The respect and the love that he deserves, and the recognition of who he is uh, that he deserves. Then Nehemiah cut straight to the chase and he asked for forgiveness. I mean, look for just a second at verse 6. Or it's actually the last part of verse 6. Look at what he says. Nehemiah is talking, so he's saying here that he confesses the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned. Notice that. He starts out, he confesses the sins of the children of Israel. And then he says, we, which we have sinned against thee. Right? So thee is God against you, God. Both I and my father's house have sinned. He doesn't say, Oh God, forgive us a wicked nation who has a lot of wicked people in it. Thank God I'm not one of them. But it has a lot of wicked people in it who have done a lot of wicked things. And God, I just pray that you either change their hearts or strike them down. That's kind of how we pray, isn't it? It's at least how we think. It's how we act. That's not what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah takes ownership. We have sinned against you, God. Now, 
Maybe he hadn't done every bad thing that everyone else had done. Maybe he wasn't the most wicked person in the lot, but he wasn't perfect either. Now come on, that's the nicest thing I could think to say about you or I. We not, might not be the worst, but we ain't perfect either. We sure aren't sinless. We sure got our share of guilt. The church as a whole, collectively, you want to look at the condition that our nation is in? You want to look at, I mean, we, we want to holler at the TV and we want to gripe and we want to moan and we want to groan about the things that we see happening in Washington, D.C. We, we, we want to carry on and gripe and groan about the things that we see happening on the streets of Portland and Seattle, right? And then we want to say, and I can, can you even believe the things that, and we'll name somewhere closer than that, maybe Springfield or something, can't believe the time that, that we live in. And then we'll talk talk about, and I'm bad as anybody about this, we'll talk about the things that we see in commercials on TV and the wickedness and the extent of it, but listen to me, we've got ownership in those sins too, because we need to stop and think here for a minute, us collectively, the church, capital C, right, we've got some ownership in this. Things are in the shape that they're in because we've let it get to the place that it's in. We have complacently sat there and said, Oh, shame on them. At least it's not me doing it. Church, it is way past time that we take a page from Nehemiah's book and we take ownership of the part that we have played in all of this. Anything from actively involved to just plain old complacency. Notice, he confesses, right, that the people sin. But he includes himself. I can't emphasize that enough. That is so important. You know, it's so much easier for us to see sin in other people than it is for us to recognize the sin in our own lives. It's a lot easier for us to confess the sins of somebody else than it is for us to humble ourselves before God and confess our own sins in our own lives. Now, I want you to notice what Nehemiah does, right? In verse 7, he says, We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept your commandments. Right? He's talking to God. He's praying. Right? Remember that. When you pray, you are talking to God. He says, We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept your commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments. In those three statements right there, commandments, statutes, and judgments, what Nehemiah does is he has just then pulled together all of the Bible that he had at that time, and he is simply saying, we have disobeyed your word, God. That's what sin really is, right? Fundamentally, 
disobedience to the word of God is sin. You go all the way back. I mean, it's a simple concept, and we try to overcomplicate it. What we have contained in our scripture, right? We call it the Bible. What else do we call it? The word of God. Because it's what God has spoken. It's what God has said. It's God's word to us. Sin always has been and always will be disobeying God's word. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What did God do? He gave a command. His word. He spoke. You can eat freely of every tree in the garden except for this one right over here, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. That's it. That was God's word. That's what God said. That makes it his word. To disobey his word is sin. What happened? Well, serpent comes along, and he entices Eve to disobey God's word to eat of the tree to sin how does Eve react right when the tempter first comes along the first thing she does is she actually adds to God's word she says don't eat of it Don't even touch it, lest we should die. Now, I, I, did Eve, is she the one that originally added to it? Or we don't know what Adam, because God said, told Adam, and so Adam had to relay that to Eve, we assume. Now, did, did Adam say, I know what you're like, I know how you are, so don't even get near it, don't even touch it, did he? I don't know. Or did Eve completely do that on her own? I got no idea. But I know that the but the I know that the serpent, all he had to do was just twist a little bit more. He's saying, Oh, surely that's not what God really said. Surely that's not what he meant. Aren't they saying, isn't he saying the same thing today about homosexuality? Isn't that the exact same argument? Oh, that's not what God really meant by that. And they'll try to use all kinds of clever arguments, right? The serpent said, look, God doesn't want you to eat of that because then you'll be like God's. Oh, that's what Eve wanted. And here's the thing. I'm, I sound like I'm blaming her for everything. Adam stood right there beside her. Read that really carefully. Eve didn't take of the forbidden fruit, eat of it, and say, Oh my goodness, I have got to find Adam. He has got to try this. This is better than a hot apple pie and ice cream. That's not what she said. She ate and gave it to the man who was with her. And he did eat. And what was that? Sin. The original sin. What is the result of that? The fall. Destruction. Decay. Disease. Death. Desolation. 
Everything you look out in the world today and you see that is not perfect is the result of that. It's no different now than it was then. The principle is just as simple. God says, that's God's word. To disobey God's word is sin. The consequences or the results of sin are the same. Same as it was in Adam and Eve's day. Same as it was in uh, Nehemiah's day. Same as it is today. So, one thing that we see that is so remarkable, that's my opinion, remarkable, Nehemiah takes Nehemiah is a good guy that is close to God and Nehemiah still takes ownership in confessing these sins you know church that's where we've got to be and we ain't there yet We've got to figure out how to get to the place that we can let God, we can let our hearts be broken over this sin just the same as God's. I feel like we're in a spot right now where we say, oh, that's too bad for them. I want to say something and I know I shouldn't say something. We're at a time where a group of churches cannot even write a prayer of repentance and officially as a group adopt it without watering the language down so much because we're afraid of getting sued because we're afraid of admitting guilt and you know all these NAACP type groups and ACLU and all these other acronyms you've got the whole alphabet soup coming after you and I get that from a legal standpoint and lawyers and all that I get that but come on we have got to get to the point that we are truly Broken. We're not even broken enough that we can't even write something down on paper that says that we that we're sinned and we're repenting of it. You want to know probably the best character characteristic of Nehemiah is he's a man of prayer. But the most remarkable thing to me is his willingness in this prayer 
to, t- to take ownership and confess and include himself. He's not just sitting there saying, this bunch of wicked people and the generations before me and my parents was awful and their parents was awful and my goodness, there's been four generations, right? And then God sends us back and Zerubbabel and that bunch of, uh, of lazy, no good for nothing. They've just sat around here and squandered the opportunity that God has given them and then more has come along and they've just decided to waller in the filth. You don't see Nehemiah saying anything like that. The tr- you know want to know what the trouble in America today is? We've departed from the Word of God. That's why it's completely a culture of sin. That's why it is completely... Everything that you see is neck deep in sin. And I've been trying to say, and I'll move on. It is useless for us to moan and groan about the broken down walls of our life and our society and our nation until we until we are first of all willing to confess the sins that cause the ruin in the first place. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. And then there's one other thing, one other aspect of this prayer, and I'll be done. I would call it the petition. Nehemiah asks God specifically for some things in this prayer. That's one thing that I've tried to teach and encourage. That's one thing that I've, I've tried to encourage as the different ones have come and done readings and led us in prayer is I've tried to get all of us out of our prayer comfort zone. And what I mean by that is, is we get in the habit of just saying the same things and asking for the same things. And the truth is in a lot of that even, we're, just, we're too in general. Listen to what Nehemiah says here in verse 11 when he says, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. What, what Essentially what Nehemiah is saying is, God, I want to do something for you and I want to do something for you that brings glory to your name. Can I tell you something just real quick? I, I've, I, this is something I've learned along the way. If you really, in your heart, deep down, want to do a work for God, and if your really only interest is that God gets the glory, and you're not interested in getting any praise yourself, and then you're not interested, you truly don't care about people bragging on you and, you, and you, you're not truly deep down desiring compliments for what you've done, if you are just interested in Jesus getting lifted up and Jesus getting glorified, God will use you. God will use you. Mark my words. God will use you. The next thing that he says in verse 11, I want you to take note of it, is he says, Prosper, I pray thee, thy servant. Nehemiah is praying for success. 
in going before the king because that's what he's getting ready to do. That's what he's been, he's been praying and fasting because his heart is broken and the condition of, of the things that is in Jerusalem. And, but he has been praying, right? For This has probably been three to four months he's been praying about this, right? But that's not the end of it. He's not going to just pray and say, well, I hope they do good and then move on to the next thing. No, he is ready to put hands and feet to those prayers. He's willing to sacrifice, right? He is willing to, 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 to give of his own to do something about it. And he's getting ready to risk it all to go before the king. And he's praying for success in going before the king. Because Nehemiah wanted to go back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah wanted to rebuild those broken down walls and he wanted to reconstruct those gates. Nehemiah wanted to do something and he had to have, he was in the position, he had to have the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. I guess it would be fair to say that this was something that only Artaxerxes, the the king, could give him permission to do. So what is he doing? He's calling on God. Proverbs 21.1 tells us that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the, as the rivers of the water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. He knew that God was the one that controlled uh, the heart of the king and the direction that it would go. So let me just say this, and, and I'm done. First of all, when you've got problems... When we've got problems, we have got to learn to get on our knees before God and to talk to Him. And we've got to learn to talk to Him and, and ask of Him whatever it is. Get specific. Whatever it is that we need, right? We need to learn to ask to Him and we need to come... Uh, how do I want to say this? We need to ask Him to come onto the scene first. Instead of waiting until we feel absolutely defeated, desperate, and hopeless. That's what we do. We wait until we're until we feed it, till we feel defeated and desperate and hopeless. And then, as a last resort, thinking there's nothing else we can do, we'll go to God. No, we've got to learn to go to God first. We've got to quit uh, using Him as a last resort. He has got to start being our first call. And let me make this one last statement. And after this, Jennifer, you can come up here. Nehemiah, Nehemiah's compassion. That's what you see when he hears of the broken condition of his people. It literally, can you, I mean, you see it, the news hits him. It's heavy. See him setting down right then, right there as he hears the word being so devastated and shaken by it that he's got to set down right then. He begins to weep. To mourn, he's so upset about it that, I mean, I guarantee he wasn't hungry, he didn't care about eating. He begins to fast, and he begins to pray. That's a picture of Nehemiah's compassion. That compassion led to the restoration of Jerusalem, to a miracle happened, one of the great miracles of the Bible, something that was humanly impossible happening with all kinds of opposition coming at them the whole time. Here's what I want to tell you. 
if we could take this lesson from Nehemiah, maybe, maybe your compassion, maybe your grief, maybe your brokenheartedness over someone else's broken condition would lead to their restoration. That's what happened at Nehemiah's. I think God would do the same thing for you. Would you stand to your feet? I want to open the altar and I want to give you an opportunity to come. Spirit of God dealing with you, would you come? God moving upon you, don't you wait. Don't you be concerned with what others think. It don't matter what they think. You got a burden, you got a need, you got a heavy heart. Would you come? Whatever it is tonight, would you come? Don't miss this opportunity. Maybe there's somebody you need to be praying for. Maybe there's some things going on in your own life. Whatever it is, would you come tonight? Would you come?